Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So today we have an interview with Jonathan Grant coming up in a moment. But before we dive into this, I am so excited. Today is the day. Uh, Impact Culture is out. After three years of waiting, um, uh, it's a a year since I actually finished writing this, uh, we now have the book available for you to buy. So I'm going to put the link into the show notes. Uh, Go over, check it out, and uh, hopefully uh, enjoy. Uh, so uh, this is paperback uh, from our website, also from our website and the link in the show notes you can get uh, the audio version uh, and the ebook version. If you want to do that via the Amazon ecosystem then you can head over to Amazon and get the Kindle version or the Audible version. Uh, and uh, I should say, when you get the hard copy, you also get a free bookmark, which has been designed to fit in with the design of the book. Um, so a little bonus there. If you want to tune in to the book launch, that is coming up uh, this morning. If you are listening to this fresh, you may have already le- uh, missed this. Um, so this is at 9 till 10 a.m. UK time uh, on um on YouTube, and again, I'll put the link in the show notes in case you can make it. Uh, and uh, it, importantly, if you want to continue that discussion, maybe you're going to connect with us and uh, and uh, and get this afterwards. Then there are two ways that you can get involved. Um, as I've said before, there is a community of practice around impact culture, uh, with my book seeding this, but hopefully just the first of many seeds that will grow into a really rich and diverse conversation. So there is an email list. I'll be putting some questions into that to get the discussion going once the book launch is done. Uh, There is a series of free training events and discussion groups, um, including reading groups. There's another reading group coming up uh, after, uh, after today's one. And uh, on the book website, again, link in the show notes, uh, you have uh, pretty much 90% of the book open access. Of course, when you're turning a book into a website, um, it's a very different format um, and not everything is in there. But the vast majority of the stuff that you need to be able to put this stuff into practice is there. And of course, a link to the open access peer review journal version uh, of the, the book as well. So uh, enjoy. Uh, Hopefully you will uh, find this useful and uh, inspiring in equal measure. Um, uh, And uh, and if not, then I'd love to know why. And let's discuss that. Come along to some of these events, um, dive onto the email list uh, and give us your perspectives. So today's interview is with Jonathan Grant, as I mentioned at the beginning, who was a vice principal in charge of impact uh, for King's College London. Uh, He's now a a consultant. Uh, He also has a a large body of research uh, under his belt, actually looking at impact. And I'll describe some of this um, as part of the interview, some fascinating findings that he's got about uh, the impact or otherwise of pure research, debunking some of the uh, the myths uh, around how important uh, these uh, serendipitous impacts from pure research, um, uh, non-applied research, might be. Uh, so, uh, just so, yeah. In fact, a week ago today, we had the discussion group with Jonathan. Uh, I caught up with them afterwards to try and capture some of the key points that uh, that we discussed, so that you can all benefit from that uh, as well. Just as a discussion between the two of us. Uh, some fascinating ideas and some controversial ideas as well. If you were there with us for the discussion group, you'll have heard some of the discussion around the current strike uh, and pay and conditions for early career researchers. Um, Jonathan admits very freely that uh, his answer is not necessarily the answer, but it is an answer to start thinking very differently about this particular problem. And I think this is what I like about Jonathan's book so much. It is uh, a, a theoretical approach based on this idea of new power, which um, he will describe in the interview. 
that gives us a radical new way of thinking about how we organize our researchers and the cultures within our, our, our universities. Did I say researchers? Oops. How we organize our universities. <clears throat> And the cultures that exist within the, within those institutions, uh, and this is a, a, a bottom up, a, a grassroots kind of revolution type based idea uh, that uh, can operate uh, with or without the blessing of uh, our senior managers. Uh, but coming from a position of uh, being a senior manager in a university, he also has thought about how we can actually start to uh, adapt uh, the existing structures uh, to to do things very differently. Uh, this is uh, about uh, going beyond the hierarchies to the people who have the best ideas. Uh, this is uh, about university structures that are flat, uh, that uh, empower students to, to lead, that, that are early career researchers to be in the driving seats, that give them job security as well as job satisfaction. Uh, this is a radical new vision for how our universities might be. Uh, and entirely consistent with the kind of ideas that uh, you will be hearing about uh, and uh, and reading about if you download um, or buy my book. So let's dive into the interview. So it is an absolute pleasure to be here on the podcast with you today, Jonathan Grant. I have had the pleasure of reading your new book, The New Power University. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to exploring this, going into some depth and truly, really trying to understand where this has come from, uh, but also importantly, where this is going. Uh, and I have to say that one of the things that struck me uh, as I was reading this was just uh, the, the amount of common ground between my thinking and yours on some of these issues. And so for people who've been listening to this podcast, uh, this is going to be a conversation about how we can disrupt the system, uh, how we can topple uh, some of the old power hierarchies that dominates the higher education sector to start doing things differently uh, from the bottom up uh, in ways that can start to really affect social change at scale through what we do in our day-to-day -day as researchers and as part of that broader community in higher education. So Jonathan, tell me a little bit more about yourself, um, who you are, where you've come from uh, and why you wrote this book. Well Mark, can I just begin by saying what a privilege it is to be invited to um, talk um, with you about the book and about the ideas in the book. Um, as you um, surmise so nicely, to, to agree, the book is not about the book. The book is about the ideas and how we translate those ideas um, into impact. Um, and I guess like all of us, um, you know, we're on journeys and our, 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 our sort of experiences get shaped um, as we sort of meander between jobs and um, relationships and, and, and such like. Um, and my, my career um, has sort of spanned three sort of um, cognate sectors. But um, to begin with, I spent um, five years at the Wellcome Trust. Um, that was the first job I had after doing a PhD. Um, I applied for a job um, which had the um, title policy analyst without really knowing what the word policy or analyst meant at that time. But um, found my vocation, um, you know, still would describe myself as a policy analyst and in its broader sense. And the first dot point um, in my job description at the Wellcome Trust was to evaluate the impact of the Wellcome Trust. Um, and as I like to jest, um, I never achieved that. I'm still not sure anybody's achieved that. Um, but it sort of gave me a intellectual passion that I still hang on to um, because it's such an interesting question. Um, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, but it's just measuring the impact of research is just fundamentally intellectually interesting. Um, I then ended up being executive assistant to the director of the Wellcome Trust, so a real hands-on policy role um, and loved that and then uh, moved on up to be head of policy. Um, at the time that my wife was pregnant with my first or our first child, um, and knew that um, sort of you can't be a head of policy and be the father I wanted to at least strive to be um, because head of policies are usually the first in and the last out of um, any office. Um, so started looking for a job in Cambridge where we live um, 
and came across Rand Europe, um, the public policy think tank, um, sent a very cheeky letter um, to the president of Rand Europe um, saying, look, I know a lot about science and technology policy. You don't actually do anything in science and technology policy. Hire me and I'll develop a practice for you. Um, thankfully, this guy was American and he liked that approach um, and offered me a job. And I spent 12 years at Rand Europe developing that practice. Um, and you know, towards the end, I became president of um, Rand Europe as well. Um, absolutely love Rand. Um, it sort of ticks so many boxes for me. Um, and indeed, I'm still doing work with them um, today. But then got approached by King's in must have been around 2013 um, to set up the Policy Institute um, at King's. Um, something I'd never really imagined working inside a university, um, but the proposition of setting up this sort of knowledge brokering um, sort of boundary spanning entity in a sort of Russell Group type university um, seemed like a really sort of exciting opportunity to try out a number of things um, I'd written about and, and, and such like. Um, so joined King's in 2014. Um, set up the Policy Institute, which is still um, going strong, um, but then sort of picked up various roles at King's, which kind of led to the um, the um, idea around the book, which we can come back to. Yeah, so the idea around the book is is this theoretical framework uh, around power. Um, and, um, and of course, King's, like most Russell Group universities, is uh, an archetypical old power institution. Can you just explain a little bit more about this, this theoretical framework that you've used to frame your book and your argument? Yeah, so, so the idea of um, new power um, is not my idea. It's a book of that title um, published by Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms in 2018. Um, and I would strongly recommend um, listeners to read that book. It, it, it's, you know, I, I always joke, you know, every 10 years you read a book that changes your mind. It, that's the book that changed my mind for this 10-year um, period. Um, and what they do there is that they sort of um, contrast what they call old power values with new power values. Um, so old power is words like managerialism, exclusivity, competition, um, professionalism, specialization. New power, by contrast, is sort of um, informal um, governance and decision-making, opt-in um, participation, um, radically transparent, open source, um, a sort of what they term a maker culture, a do-it-yourself maker culture, um, and, and what have you. And what they're arguing, basically, is that with the um, sort of um, mainstreaming of social media and the internet, um, our ability to connect is, you know, order, you know, order of magnitude greater than it was, say, a generation ago, probably more than that. Um, and we can think about social movements in a fundamentally different way using these new technologies. Um, and they illustrate this through numerous examples, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, Airbnb, Uber, but also in the realm of politics, people like Trump, um, was a very um, sort of skilled user of some new power techniques and mobilizing um, Twitter and, and, and sort of um, reaching out to um, his base, quote unquote. Um, so, so it's not a sort of political statement. It's a, it's a new set of tools that um, both the private sector and the um, sort of um, public realm are increasingly using. And what I do in the book is I say, well, if new power is the future, which I passionately believe it is, what are the implications for these deeply, deeply old power institutions that have been around for a thousand years? And are they going to adapt in this new power world? And what would they look like? Yeah, so as I looked at your career at King's um, and listened or read you, your story about how you had progressed in your own thinking uh, when you were at King's, it seems that rather than seeing these two worlds butting up against each other and being in conflict with each other, as you've just said, this is an opportunity for these old power institutions to adapt, to, shame, to change and to shift in line with these uh, grassroots movements that are, are collecting around them. And, um, and this could be a, a good thing uh, rather than a th something to be seen in, innately as a threat. 
Um, and interestingly, actually, I, I've just published a, or a preprint of a paper uh, where we reviewed um, uh, over 70 university strategies from around the world. And uh, the King's vision and strategy that you helped to create uh, was one of those. And it just happens to be one of my favorites. Um, I'm not just saying this because it's you. I regularly recommend this when people are saying, can you give me an example of a good university strategy that is really great when it comes to impact? Uh, King's is one of my go-to strategies that I point people to. Um, but I wonder, I mean, it's, it's, it's a vision for, I think, 2029, if I remember rightly. Um, uh, but to what extent did you feel that uh, that change was happening? What were the bright spots? What were the uh, achievements that, that you could see already within King's? Uh, or are there other institutions that you would point to where you can see the change happening already and getting embedded within the institutional structures and ways in which these organizations behave already now? Yeah, so um, just step back slightly because I because I'm 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 feel very warm that you like um, the strategy because um, it was quite a risky strategy to write, um, but it was something I've long held belief that strategy is a story, um, and most people I think um, approach strategies as spreadsheets, um, and what I try to do. Um, both through the process of developing that strategy and then, if you like, the narrative that sits around it is to tell a story. Um, and um, for me, it works because we tell this story and we tell this story, which is a collective story of all the communities um, at King's. And there was a, quite a complex process around um, identifying and then articulating that story. But the language in, in the narrative is the language that came out of those conversations. So it's not my language. I'm sort of replaying it back. And that's to a degree why I think it's quite um, authentic. Um, in terms of, um, you know, what was going on at King's at the time, which you would sort of um, sort of classify as, if you like, new power E, um, like all institutions, there were brilliant examples of this going on. And, and that's why new power, old power isn't either or. It is this mix and meld um, of the two. And, and I, I guess, you know, the, the institutes of which policy was one, but we had a cultural institute, entrepreneurship institute, um, were deliberately sort of constructed to be poorer, slightly floating, not um, dragged into faculty hierarchies and, um, you know, um, and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So they, they were encouraged to um, sort of be different, feel different, act differently. Um, and we're given, if you like, the the cover to do that um, effectively, which I think is um, really important. But the other stuff, if you went and looked and met the people in our, um, at, when I was there, the widening participation department, um, you know, they, they developed um, this thing called Parents Power with um, Citizens UK, um, where basically the, you know, the data, you know, the research data um, tells us one of the sort of barriers of people um of young people going to university as their parents haven't gone to university. So nobody knows they don't have the social capital, the knowledge um, to navigate the system. Um, how do you write a personal statement, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the, the, the really simple idea is, well, maybe we can work with parents to um, identify what parents want to know and then find ways of allowing parents to capture that information. And that's parent power. Um, and, you know, that came from the widening participation group and the, um, Citizens UK. It's now, you know, there's um, chapters of Parent Power in Oldham. And um, I know Anne-Marie Canning, who's gone on to be chief executive at the Brilliant Club, but was at King's at the time, um, very much wants to generate a sort of uh, a nationwide network. Um, but, you know, for me, Parent Power is, is almost the sort of um, poster child of what new power looks like in the HE sector. Yeah, and I do love how your book is so broad ranging. Um, while I've been focusing primarily on on research and, and researchers and research impact, um, you're looking at that student experience. Uh, you're looking at um, HR structures and and the governance um, and and that social mission um, of of universities with the, within their communities. Uh, and yeah. that is something that that really comes across strongly from um, from that vision, from that strategy, and and also from your book. Um, the responsibility that we all have to use what resource we have um, uh, to do social good. Uh, one of the, the stats, um, actually from some of your own former research that uh, st st stood out to me was uh, around this idea that 
well, we need to protect blue skies research because you never know what impact might come from it. And people have all these examples, um, legitimate examples, uh, of um, of basic, non-applied, pure research that went on to change the world. Um, uh, but uh, I wasn't aware that you or anyone had done this, um, but, uh, but you did a study to look at um, what proportion of uh, clinical guidelines uh, were actually underpinned by basic science. And you came up with a figure of somewhere between 2 and 21%. Um, and there are other studies that you've cited that come up with uh, even smaller figures um, uh, that suggest that, yeah, okay, maybe uh, one in a hundred or so uh, of uh, of these um, of these impacts uh, that you see might actually be based on pure research. But bottom line, if you want to have impact, you need to plan for it. You need to you need to build that in uh, and not just hope for some uh, some luck. Um, but if you extend your argument, um, then the danger is that we end up prioritizing short-term uh, instrumental research that is kind of more in the category of consultancy than it is in the category of research, because uh, there, there are all these consultants out there who can do incredible research for far better value, uh, if we're honest, uh, than your average university researcher. Uh, that will deliver impact uh, and perhaps deliver more impact than we can deliver. But what makes us unique in the university sector is that power of original thought, uh, the depth uh, and the critical thinking um, and the academic freedom we have to go above and beyond um, uh, what uh, you might feel you need uh, as part of a consultancy tender uh, to solve a, a short-term problem. Uh, so what do you say to, to your critics who say, but you, we still need to protect Blue Skies research? Well, so I, I mean, there's many threads um, in, in that argument. So um, and I think my position is slightly more nuanced than um, you're articulating it there. So my big gripe is that universities and research funders basically say, give me more money because we'll have a massive impact on society. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, we go to the UKRI website now, I guarantee you that's going to be basically the message. And when you look at the data, um, you know, which is what I was trying to do in the book and in those studies, is try to really understand what is the relationship between that blue skies, pure, whatever language we want to use, research and impact. Um, and there are some horrendous claims out there and horrendous studies trying to purport a linkage. And what I'm saying is those studies are not um, of sufficient quality to back up the type of arguments you pick up on a UKRI website. So can we please have a much more sophisticated understanding of what we mean by blue skies research? I hate that language. What we mean by pure research? I hate that language. Um, and I hate the way that we classify research into basic or applied. Yeah, All of this is deeply unhelpful. Um, and what we need to be doing is supporting an ecosystem of different types of research that, in my view, do lead to some kind of societal impact. But I'm not saying every bit of research needs to lead to impact. And I'm not saying that impact has to occur within five years. I don't mind if it occurs over 50 years. Um, but the arguments you hear from research funders, um, you know, almost ad nauseum is, um, you know, serendipity, basic research, give us the money. And we'll give you something, but it'll probably take us 25 years. Um, and for me, in this new power world, that is an unsustainable argument. Great. So protect this to an extent. But if you're going to do so, do that on the basis of evidence, um, not on the basis of claims that are just based on your own sense of privilege, that we need to be able to keep doing what we want to do because we want to do it. Uh, and uh, or just make make it a bit more, uh, a bit more honest, a bit more authentic. Yeah, there might not be any impact at all. And fund us for the sake of it, because we value knowledge. And, and say you don't know. Say you don't know. We do not know. Yes, that, you know, that's an honest answer. We don't know. It's a really difficult question to work out what proportion of impact is related to basic science 50 years ago. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I get that. A more nuanced argument um, and intriguing because it's something that 
I've I've heard the arguments um, parroted to me a, a lot, and I will confess I've taken them at face value. I've not really thought about them critically enough. So it's fascinating to see the evidence and and to really bring them under some scrutiny. So there's a couple of, of quite controversial um, ideas that you've uh, talked about in the book, and uh, two of them relate to um, the, the this, this casualization of uh, of the workforce. Um, and um, and so so one of the ideas um, that you've talked about is this this idea that in fact, uh, despite the, the noise that might be being made at the moment um, uh, with strikes and the like, um, when again you look at the evidence on this, um, the majority of people on temporary contracts are generally quite happy. Uh, and actually some studies from Europe and Australia that have suggested that in fact, uh, people on temporary contracts might even be happier. Uh, and I've used the word happy, it's probably not the right word, but uh, more content, um, experience more well-being, whatever it is, than people on permanent contracts. And, uh, and I'm wondering, is this another example of, um, of just, uh, there's uh, a dominant narrative that makes a lot of noise, but when you hold that up to scrutiny, the evidence doesn't support it. Or perhaps is there something different going on in Britain compared to uh, where the data was collected for these for these studies? What, what's going on with that? Because it doesn't seem to marry up with yeah. what I hear on the street from your average academic. Yeah. So 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 um, let let me step back and try to, and cover those points. But if I miss something, do come back and and, and probe me. So. Um, the first point is the current, in my view, as an outsider going into academia, um, I was quite shocked about the appallingly outdated HR policies, to put it um, in, a, in a massive sort of generalization, vis-a-vis what I'd experienced, um, you know, in RAND, a U.S. corporation, big, dirty, <laughs> doesn't you know, um, and, and vis-a-vis and um, you know other other um, entities. Um, and today, I still think that's the case. I, I, I think if you um, asked a HR professional from outside academia to review HR practices inside academia, they would be poorly shocked. Um, and to a degree, I think that explains in part the deep level of dissatisfaction amongst academics, not professional staff, amongst academics um, in universities. And, and it's a, um, it, you know, and I've got lots of sympathy for that. I can, I can see why they're dissatisfied. Um, I think the academic contract, quote unquote, um, that they um, signed up to um, has fundamentally changed the implicit contract, not the paper contract. The implicit contract has changed. Um, the strikes illustrate that, um, you know, the deal, um, you know, sort of you became an academic, say, 20 years ago is that you, um, you know, you'd be well paid, but you probably could earn more given your um, sort of expertise and knowledge in other sectors. Um, but in return for that slightly um, lower salary, we're going to give you flexibility and we're going to give you security in retirement. Um, and now people are sort of... Um, taking away the flexibility and taking away that security, but they're not doing anything with the salary. Yeah. Um, it's not surprising that people are upset. Um, I get that wholeheartedly. So um, what I try to do in the book is really step back from that argument and say, you know, this is broken. Yeah. What's the alternative? Um, and, and I wouldn't be arrogant to say my alternative is the alternative. Um, but I do desperately think we need to have a conversation across the sector about what an alternative um, sort of career structure is for academics, because the current system is not working, in my view. Um, if people want to dispute that, they can, but it does not work. Um, so I, I then um, go into the data, um, and, and some of that data is UK data, um, but the, the data around job satisfaction, um, where people, you know, gig um, contract folk, who are knowledge workers and well-paid, critical, are more satisfied than um, non-gig knowledge workers paid the same level, okay? The explanation for that in the literature is because they got more agency in what they do, okay? That is a fundamentally different argument than if you're a cleaner and you're low-paid and you're on a gig contract because you don't have any agency, yeah? So part of the issue here is also agency. 
Uh, does that include postdocs then? So well, postdocs on short-term contracts. Yeah, so, so this is outside academia. So, well yeah, yeah so, so, you know, so I would, um, I, I think there's a very legitimate argument to make that, um, you know, serial postdoc researchers, um, graduate teaching, teaching assistants, um, you know, and even sort of, you know, junior lecturers who may have a more stable contract um, are actually... Um, have very little agency and therefore will not get that satisfaction. But the further you progress as a researcher, the more independent you become, the more grants you get, the more you be, you know, you, you're a PI on, on projects, the more agency you get. Um, and that that's kind of what I explore. I say, well, the, the more agency you hold as an academic, maybe that's the time that you should be moving over to short-term contracts. And actually, we give more junior staff who don't have that agency fixed-term contracts over a five- to ten-year period. Now, I, I'm not going to sort of, um, you know, defend that position to death, if you see what I mean, but what I will defend is the current system's not working. So you may not like that. I get why people don't like it, understand the weaknesses in it, but let's have a conversation about an alternative system. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a valid alternative, isn't it, to, to say actually what we need is people need that job security early in their career as they're building their skills, their connections, their portfolio, et cetera. Uh, and they need it less once they have built that status. And you described these as celebrity researchers and you can hop from position to position and you're unlikely to be out of a job for long. And uh, you're probably commanding a salary that's big enough that if you are out of a job for a while, you're not going to suffer too badly, et cetera. Um, uh, uh, whether or not that would work in a market system, whether those celebrity researchers uh, would, um, would would go with that, I don't know. But the point that you're trying to make, I think, is that this idea that the system is broken and and actually it's kind of the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> that um, that the, it is these early career researchers who actually need that stability, um, and yet that's where they have least stability. And, uh, and as a result, you have incredibly talented people who end up going out of academia because they just want that stability. Yeah. So uh, just a, a sort of a, a muse on that, um, which I think got really amplified um, in COVID. Um, you know, just walk around your institution and, and see who's got the biggest offices. Um, my guess is that, that your, your most junior researchers are hot desking, sharing space, your deans vice chancellors have got large suites um for their space um when you move online um the people who do not have a home office are your junior researchers and the people who do have a home office are your deans um and just symbolically i think that concept of space um captures if you like a lot of what we're talking about um in, in terms of um the um you know the, the, I'm, I'm going to use the word exploitation of junior staff in the he system Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a a huge problem, and I think we need some innovative thinking. Yeah. And yeah. I think, um, as you say, whether this is the the right solution or not, the point is we need to be open up opening up these conversations and thinking about alternatives to just further kind of trying to fix the existing system, um, which is I think often where where these conversations end up focusing. Um. So, um, one of the other controversial issues that you bring up is this idea that universities need to take a stance on controversial issues of the day. Uh, and I wondered if we could explore this because I, I was intrinsically attracted to this idea. Um, and yet, it was also ringing alarm bells for me. So, uh, when it comes to fairly uncontested issues, at least amongst university staff, such as sustainability or climate change. And clearly they are contested, um, but generally academics are with the idea climate change is real. We need to do something with this. Uh, great. Uh, let's take that stance. Um, uh, let's declare a climate emergency. Let's let's do what we can um, uh, in, in that kind of more lobbying mode. Uh, but what about more contested issues. And so as you know, I, I work on environmental issues um, and I work with a number of colleagues who work on uh, things like GM and fracking. Uh, and so the, the vast majority of the academics I know who study these issues um, uh, are in favour of them and tell me that they're safe. I'm not an expert, I don't know, but they are for it. Uh, and yet uh, the majority of uh, their colleagues 
um, in the rest of the university and the public uh, do not agree with them. Uh, and and so I can imagine these colleagues uh, taking your booking and saying, look, here is a, a really persuasive argument. We need to take a pro-GM stance as a, as a university, for example, uh, no matter how unpopular that is, because this is an evidence-based stance, according to me and my research. Um, uh, so how do you deal with, with, with issues like that when uh, you're never going to get consensus? And in fact, these could end up being highly diver- highly what was the word? Um, disruptive. Um, it cause 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 conflict. Yeah. So so you know a bit like the argument around research funding. I, I come at this um, from a slightly different perspective. So my my sort of logical thought is um, universities only ever seem to take a stance when it is something that matters to them internally, i.e., tuition fees, money. Um, sometimes planning permission to put up a new glossy building. So, it's, so their, 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 their stance is deeply selfish and it's never societal. Um, and when you say that, or when I say that in the past, why aren't we taking a stance on X? Um, even on stuff that you know I think is reasonably uncontentious, uncontent- I get told, oh, we can't do that because of academic freedom. Um, and I'm thinking, well, if you know the 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 the, the lady in the street hears that argument, um, they're going to scratch their head. Um, you know that that that's so. You you only take a stance when it matters to you, but when it matters to me, you you I'm willing to take a stance because you don't have the courage um, to take that stance. And I think that's part of the reason why the social contract between universities and society has broken because we do come across as arrogant and elitist and self-serving. Um, again, your listeners may disagree, but you know that's. Um, my take on it. So if, if you accept that, then you have to say, well, how do we take a stance and what do we take a stance on? Um, and what are the consequences of doing that? So, you, so Mark, you're absolutely right. There's a bunch of stuff which is um, uncontested in our sphere, climate change being um, the um, very good um, illustration of that. And, you know, but even then I have heard people saying, well, um, we, we shouldn't be taking a stance on this because of academic freedom on issues like, you know, um, the living wage, which, you know, I, I, I sort of um, write about a bit. I hear the same argument. Um, well, actually paying people a decent wage to live off is should not be about academic freedom. It should be about doing the right thing as an institution. Um, so so it, it, it's a thinking about who you are as an institution and what your social impact is vis-a-vis um, the, the, the stance which will is driven by self-interest. Um, now, there will be issues. GM is a lovely example of that, um, where you will not get agreement um, in, in a comprehensive university. You would not get agreement. Um, I, 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 so I'm not forcing that. You, know, you have to go through the, the governance structures. You have to collectively come together and, and come to agreement. And I'm not saying you have to um, take stances, but I'm saying where, you, where there is agreement, within your community, then be public and then campaign around that issue. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't sit on the fence. I think I use that phrase um, in the book that sitting on the fence is damaging universities. Um, I had a conversation with somebody um, when I published the book who it was, it was a review in the Times Higher and they, they were pushing this, pushing me on this um, and saying, well, what happens if a university says, um, that it's a Republican university in the UK sense of it, i.e. it doesn't want a monarchy. Well, in my mind, if the university comes to that conclusion as a collective and it takes that stance, that's fine. Um, and then, you know, as a Republican student or a Republican staff member, I may actually decide to go to that university rather than King's College London or um, Queen's College in Cambridge or whatever it is. Um, you know, that that's a choice I get to make. Um, so... Um, my, my, my passionate argument here is stop taking stances when it's only self-serving issues um, and start taking stances on societal issues. But as an institution, you do need to be comfortable with the stances you're taking. 
Yeah, and the idea of that academic freedom is the argument why we shouldn't be saying these things does seem to be somewhat absurd. Uh, we are inevitably going to offend people when we state a position. Uh, but that isn't that the whole point of academic freedom, that we have the freedom to think uh, for ourselves, uh, to then express those opinions and to debate them. Uh, we don't have to all agree with each other. Um, and uh, and I, I do like the idea of, uh, of, of, of pushing forward with, with ideas um, uh, and making statements and a university not having to have a unitary opinion. Uh, the business school might be having one uh, view on, on, a, uh, on an issue and put out a white paper. Um, a sustainability centre might have a completely opposing view. Uh, and and surely that is also a, a valid option. This doesn't have to operate at the scale of the university. We can all have our own perspectives, and uh, and actually doesn't that doesn't have to be destructive. That can actually be good and, and part of what it means to express our academic freedom. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I um, again as a sort of outsider coming into universities, I still find the concept of academic freedom deeply bizarre. Now, I'm, I'm not arguing against it. I believe we should all have um, freedom to think, um, whether you're academic or not, um, and freedom to express those thoughts, whether you're academic or not. But the idea that academics have a special freedom to think or freedom to articulate is, seems to me, um, slightly um, bizarre. And actually, when you go back and look at the history of the concept of academic freedom, the way it was set up, um, which I, I review this a bit in the book, vis-a-vis -vis the way it is used today as the trump card in every argument when I'm losing um, is deeply disturbing. And, and you know, I, I um, you know, if I could get a, a pound for every time somebody uses the word academic freedom, then I, I would be um, a wealthy person. Might even be able to buy a football cup. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the, the, the ways in which I've seen... Um, I'm going to suggest this is an abuse of of, of the term academic freedom. Um, is uh, is this idea that um, research has to be 100% independent of any form of political interference? Uh, and I'm going to use that word in inverted commas. And yet. At the same time, uh, we know, uh, the evidence tells us very clearly that if we want to achieve impact, then we have to work in partnership to co-produce our research with our stakeholders, many of whom are uh, members of the policy community. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that, that I, I picked up on as I was reading your book was uh, the work that you have done with a charity that um, uh, you're on the board um, of uh, called Fight for Sight. Um, and uh, you wanted to, to commission uh, research and you decided, well, um, uh, rather than going to a bunch of researchers, um, uh, as, uh, as funders typically do, let's actually go to the stakeholders and ask them uh, what questions have you got uh, that our, our researchers might be able to, um, to, to answer in these projects. Uh, and so now this is uh, your stakeholders actually driving the research agenda. Um, and a bunch of researchers coming in and turning them into research projects, which will also generate some additional new knowledge, uh, probably go deeper, further beyond um, that original question, but will also give you the answer to that question. Uh, and great, you guarantee impact. It's baked into the, the process. Uh, but I wonder if you might comment on how this seems to work within UKRI and many other research funders who attempt to co-produce their programs of research with their stakeholders. Uh, and you have these really great processes where everyone feeds in and here are the questions, we set the agenda, and then the calls come out. But at that point, the stakeholders lose control. Uh, it goes through the peer review panel of college. It then goes to a bunch of panels uh, dominated by academics. You might have a user on one of those panels. You might have a couple of stakeholder reviewers, but still dominated by, uh, by researchers um, who don't necessarily understand um, or agree necessarily with some of the, the, the impact objectives of the, the scheme. 
and at the end of that, you then get a whole load of projects that are commissioned that perhaps vaguely relate to the original stuff that your stakeholders came up with, but that have prioritized academic significance and originality, and as a result, uh, are only very often tangentially linked to those original impact objectives. And then uh, these the, the stakeholders get a bunch of projects. Uh, there's no way of systematically connecting them back into the projects. It's up to the PI, ultimately, uh, and their team as to whether or not they reach out and connect with, uh, with, with those stakeholders. And so, yeah, I start by giving a funder a bunch of great ideas. And then five years later, I get a bunch of research projects that may or may not actually give me anything that I'm looking for and very little real sense of engagement um, in between. And that doesn't strike me as the system that works. So I, I wonder, did you manage to solve that within your charity in terms of that connection through the process and whether or not you solved that? So what are your thoughts about how we can do this better and try and get over ourselves in this idea that somehow we have to be independent and distant in order for this to yeah. be above board, above board and for us to have academic freedom? Yeah. So, so. Um... To um, sort of clarify, if you like, um, so um, Fight for Sight, I'm no longer a trustee, but I, but I was um, um, up to last year. Um, they, with other um, charities interested in um, sight loss, commissioned the James Lindus Alliance, which is this group that have developed this process for prioritising research by going to, in our case, people who are um, blind, partially sighted or carers thereof, and asking them, how you know we want to commission some research how how would research change your life and you know i note it in the book that one of the top things is a way for administering eye drops because if you got cataracts and you're an 80 year old lady with arthritis it's really really difficult um and you know that you can you can you know straight away what about an eye mask what about you know there are different ways of um putting eye drops in beyond you know little droplets in in, in a bottle um and that just strikes me as so um, so interesting that you get a fun, you know, and and at no time in you know when I was chair of the um, research grant group at um, Fight for Sight did we see anything about administering eye drops. Yeah, it was all genetic studies or this and yeah, um, but you know when I when the, I saw that thing about eye drops, I thought yeah that makes sense. Um, so you know, so then look at UKRI and other funders. <clears throat> Um, you know, these are ultimately old power institutions, as old power as if you like King's College London is, but they haven't gone through that new power um, reform. And, and you, you think about how they are, um, you know, you just think about peer review as a, as a, through the lens of old power. Um, we will get the scientific elite to, to decide on the scientific elite what the scientific elite is going to fund for the scientific elite, you know, um, that is just, you know, you couldn't come up with a more succinct example of old power. So so the real question I then have is actually it, it, funding is very old power. It's, you know, it delivers, you know, we, you, me, a whole industry out there, um, look at research impact and research does have impact. So let's, you know, let's acknowledge that um, in this conversation. But what would a new power research funder look like? Yeah. Um, and a new power research funder would be one which would, um, be constantly having those James Lind Alliance type conversations um, with, with the beneficiaries or the potential beneficiaries of research. It will be creating those partnerships, um, curating co-production spaces, um, probably not funding in big chunks of, you know, here's X million pounds for five years. Goodbye. See you. Um, tell us what you've done with it. But actually, the funder would be a partner in that process <clears throat> and what have you. As you point out, as soon as you do that, counter argument is, well, you're not going to be independent as a researcher. Um, you know, I, again, nobody is independent as a researcher. Um, to claim that you are independent as a researcher probably means you're not a very good researcher um, because we all bring priors to the research um, endeavor. Um, and good researchers are honest about those priors and, and, and try to sort of structure them out through methodologies um, and what have you. Um, so I, so in my, my mind, doing research with purpose that matters to people who are going to benefit, um, absolutely zilch to do with academic freedom. Um, and we, we've just got to understand, you know, using the new power language of sort of, um, sort of um, that 
you know, short-term conditional affiliations. That is, if you like, the researcher's role is a short-term conditional affiliation with trying to solve a societal problem. Um, and we're not going to solve it. We're going to solve it by working in partnerships. Um, and, you know, in my sort of utopia, um, it's those skills that would be recognized in reward and recognition and promotion panels, um, how, how you build coalitions, how you develop um, partnerships, how you listen to different communities rather than um, how many citations you've got. I know it's not quite that simple anymore, but... Yeah, what a great place to to end our conversation because uh, I think what I'm hearing here is the need to to radically change these institutions, whether it be our universities or or our funders. That that needs to happen from from the bottom up. We need to do things completely differently, um, and yet uh, we need to recognise um, and reward these things uh, through incentive structures and, and governance systems and the like. And and I think one of the things that I thought was quite unique about your approach is that this wasn't just this kind of revolutionary call to arms and let's break everything down, uh, but this combination of the the, the bottom up grassroots movement with the, the, the recognition that uh, that these are institutions that will exist for a long time to come uh, and that we need to adapt them. And that a part of that is also a top-down um, uh, mission for university managers and, and leaders to think about how they might be able to shift uh, from old to new power. So uh, concluding thoughts, Jonathan, um, based on, on, on that. So I think you're right. I think you, you will... Um, achieve um, the, the sort of manifesto, um, which is in the New Power University, through a combination of top-down and bottom-up. Um, and a lot of that is going to be using the skills of social movements, which, it, which is around storytelling. It is around having conversations. Um, and through that storytelling and conversations, you build up trust. Um, and if I trust... <clears throat> senior leadership um, and senior leadership trust me, then you're going to get that sort of change. Um, and, and, and that, you know, I think if you look at, um, you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, um, which I have spent a bit of time um, reading around, um, you know, very classic social movement, um, but actually deeply strategic with leadership structures and, and what have you. Um, so it, it, it's, it is melding um, old power, new power is the future to get change and impact, I would argue. Wonderful. I love it. Um, we are going to have to leave it there. But Jonathan, it has been an absolute pleasure, A, reading your book, uh, B, getting to interact with you uh, at the recent reading group. Thank you again for that. Uh, and C, of course, getting to have this conversation. And um, thank you for being so open uh, to, 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 to my critiques and, uh, and going so deep with this. And uh, my, my sense is that we've all got a huge amount to learn here. And, uh, and I want to jump on your bandwagon with you. And, uh, and be part of this new power uh, movement. So, Jonathan, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for the time. No problem. 